Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with episode 409 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down the latest in the worlds of AEW and NXT. There were plans to talk about a little bit more beyond AEW and NXT on today's show, but some extenuating circumstances altered those plans. We will discuss all of that coming up in a moment. As we kick off this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, I would be remiss if I did not remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. And what that means is head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And do not forget to follow us as well on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and so much more, including pre- and post-show polls and live shows on Twitter spaces, which we hold ahead of major pay-per-views and premium live events. The next polls and pay-per-view pre-show that we will be doing on Twitter spaces will be coming in just two short weeks ahead of AEW Revolution. And that is the primary topic of today's show, AEW's build toward its first pay-per-view of 2023. But beyond that, of course, we are going to talk NXT. We also had plans to discuss New Japan Pro Wrestling Mercedes Monet having her debut match against Kyrie for the NJPW Women's Championship and Jay White potentially wrestling his final match in New Japan all at Battle of the Valley last week in San Jose, California. Unfortunately, the Silver King did not realize this was a pay-per-view somehow outside of the NJPW world ecosystem that is New Japan streaming service. So you have to purchase it in order to watch it I was not prepared to do that. I didn't know I had to. So this morning, when I was going to watch everything before today's show, I was unable to actually view the matches. So what we're going to do is we're going to stick to AEW and NXT this week. Next week, because it will be an AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview episode on Thursday, on Wednesday, we will talk NXT, and I will give you all the information that I gleam from watching NJPW Battle in the Valley. So we're going to have three shows next week before we get to the instant analysis. Of course, Saturday night after AEW Revolution goes off the air. So we're going to cover all of it next week. But this week, we're going to stick to AEW and NXT on this show. And really, to give an overview of both products this week, I thought they were both steps in the right direction. Over the last few Thursday shows here, we've been a little bit negative about AEW and NXT. Things just not really hitting properly, not coming across as well as probably the bookers of both shows intend. But AEW did take a big step forward this week on the build to Revolution with their penultimate dynamite before that major show. And NXT, they're building for two shows. They have Roadblock coming up as a TV special, and they also have NXT Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend, which is about five weeks away. So there's a ton to talk about across AEW and NXT for any first time listeners or occasional listeners who may not remember. We do put timestamps in our episode description. So if you only want to listen to the AEW or the NXT portions, you can check the description, 
find your timestamp and jump around. But as always, we do hope you listen to the entire show. This week with Revolution upcoming, we are going to start with AEW. And a quick overview of that before we get into the details across Dynamite and Rampage. I believe that Rampage on Friday was legitimately better than Dynamite was last week. Now, it wasn't by much, but I did find the show to be more entertaining. And it's rare that we ever put Rampage above a Dynamite. But last week's Dynamite was particularly poor. And Rampage just was a little bit better in terms of entertainment value, match quality, things like that. Now, that said, Dynamite this week was way better than both. And it was probably the best show AEW has put together in the last month. We have some strong segments to review that build to Revolution. There's also a couple storylines that are actually developing where previously they were not. And on top of that, the Phoenix crowd, I believe it was AEW's first time in Phoenix, that crowd was fantastic. They deserve a lot of credit for putting multiple things over on that show. Now, that's not to say AEW and Dynamite were without their faults this week because there were a number of issues on Wednesday night that we're going to discuss. But overall, Dynamite way, way, way better than what we've gotten, particularly over the last three weeks. So let's get into it. We're going to talk Dynamite and Rampage. We're mixing it together based on storyline. So keep up and let's break it all down. We're going to start with what opened hour two on Dynamite, which was Brian Danielson walking to the ring, playing to the fans and recapping his feud with MJF, basically showing MJF has been the one at fault the entire time and all of his hate for Danielson is not justified. So MJF immediately interrupted and he cried about being left by his fiance, which he was engaged or is engaged and whether it's real that he was left by her or not, I don't know, but there at least seems to be some reality there. He said, though, that the AEW title is the only thing keeping him going right now, and it's also the only thing that prevented him from committing suicide by overdose. So basically, he was jealous of Brian for having the adulation of the fans and a beautiful family, and he was angry that Brian, who had so many concussions back in WWE, still decided to continue wrestling, putting professional wrestling over the family and children he has that MJF does not. Then MJF turned to the camera and he was gonna talk to Brian's children at home. That set off Danielson who said, you say one word, I'm gonna come out there and kick your ass. But MJF did it anyway. And Danielson just stood in the ring watching him, threatening to beat Brian to a pulp in front of his kids and possibly take him out for good, forcing him to have early onset CTE. It wasn't until MJF continued talking and stepped through the ropes where Brian actually attacked him. They got separated by security. Brian eventually snuck away and drilled MJF at ringside with a massive forearm to the back of his head. MJF sold it like complete death. They got separated again and Dynamite went to commercial. So I think by the way I described that, you can probably understand I was turned on, then turned off, then turned on again, then turned off again, then turned on again at the very end of the segment. And this was easily, without question, don't get it twisted, MJF's best promo of the entire feud. And it was probably their best segment overall building to the match. The promo from MJF was extremely well thought out to play into Brian's concussions with MJF showing some vulnerability and then finally providing legitimate reasons why he hates Danielson. Now, all of that said, 
kayfabing suicidal thoughts to the degree that you're even going to mention how you would have done it and making a show of potentially overdosing to get heel heat, it was just completely unnecessary and kind of disgusting too. Not kayfabe disgusting, real life disgusting. This was the same thing as what we discussed with MJF's car accident promo a couple weeks ago. It's like, okay, the conceptualization of this is fine, but you're going too far, not going too far to make you look like an asshole and get jeers and people hating you, but like in reality, like unnecessarily taking things to a level they don't need to go. And if you're gonna be this extreme and try to take these promos to a level where they elicit this type of shock value, there's nowhere else for you to go. Every time you cut a promo after this, that doesn't involve you talking about getting dome from a woman and then blaming an accident on her or trying to to get out of legal trouble or potentially committing suicide or considering murdering someone or doing X, Y, or Z. If you don't go to that extreme, then everything else you say in the future is gonna kind of pale by comparison. I've said it once, I've said it a million times. We already know that MJF wants to be the devil. He wants to be Satan, the bad guy, the ultimate heel. You don't have to take every promo to that extreme to try to prove that you are that character. We already know you're that character. Everything else that he said, getting walked out on by his fiance, being jealous that Brian is happy with a wife and kids, and then being angry at him and hating him because he's willing to throw all that away for wrestling. That's a fantastic fucking promo concept. And MJF nailed it. Why do you have to throw the suicidal aspect into it? You just don't. And then talking to his kids through the camera, it was fantastic. It was great. Why do you have to have the element there of Brian saying, hey, I'm going to attack you if you talk about my kids and then not follow through? What you either do is you put security between them to prevent Brian from getting to him while MJF is cutting that promo, or you have MJF cut that promo on the stage where Brian needs to run up the ramp to attack him. You'd make it believable, but you can't have Danielson standing in the ring saying, I'm gonna kick your ass if you even mention my kid's name. Then have MJF talk about the kids for 90 seconds and Brian just standing there like a schmuck. It doesn't work. And let's be clear, these two things, the, the suicide thing and the Danielson standing in the ring thing, these are not nitpicks. They are legitimate problems with the segment. However, they were only two parts of what was largely an extremely strong confrontation, which is hopefully gonna lead to an even better go-home segment next week. The crowd was hot as hell for it, and for good reason, it was mostly great. Now, AEW and NXT, they both do this thing ahead of major events where they don't put the main event stars on the go-home show. I truly hope AEW and Tony Khan are smart enough to know that Danielson and MJF need to be on Dynamite next week. I don't want taped promos from them or some special interview segment. They need to be out in front of the crowd, in the ring, selling the pay-per-view, or on the stage ramp, wherever it's outside in front of the people, selling the show. Hopefully we get it next week. If not, you know, this was still a great go-home moment, but there theoretically should be one next week, and I hope that they actually give it to us. On Rampage, Mark Henry praised Orange Cassidy for having the most title defenses in AEW history when Wheeler Yuta interrupted, saying the best decision he ever made was leaving Orange and the best friends for Blackpool Combat Club. He was offended Orange didn't care at all about the All-Atlantic title. While he cares so much 
about the ROH pure title. Orange said he was there to be his friend, not teach him at that time, so he accepted the challenge. And I actually thought it was a pretty decent confrontation, a fairly consistent story, and it gave us a reason for the match on Dynamite. So moving to Dynamite, we have the All-Atlantic Championship, Orange against Yuta. This opened the show. Claudio Castagnoli came down after a couple minutes to smack Yuta across the face because he was dissatisfied with the way he was wrestling and his lack of aggressiveness early in the match. That led to Wheeler getting more aggressive and beating Orange's ass outside. He got heel heat. Claudio returned backstage. It was pretty even from there. There were a lot of counters, reversals, and move trades. I'm not going to go over all of them. They even spit in each other's faces. Orange hit some hammer elbows and an orange punch for a false finish. He added beach break for a near fall and then a second orange punch for the win. After the bell, Orange offered a hug, but Claudio walked back out. Yuta saw him, so he decided to deny him and walk away. I thought it was an outstanding match bell to bell. I actually loved the storyline elements that were inserted early, along with what seemed to be a clear heel turn at the onset of the match, not just for Yuta, but for the entirety of the Blackpool Combat Club. Yuta was the heel side all match, and it was a really good look for him. He came across 10 times more believable as an asshole than he ever has as a babyface. This was also the best Orange has looked in months. I went 4.25 stars A, and I just thought it was a blast from bell to bell. On Dynamite, John Moxley fought Evil Uno on Rampage. Uno promised to bring respect back to Dark Order by beating Mox. On Dynamite, Hangman Page was about to read Uno the Riot Act backstage when he demanded Page stay there from bell to bell during the match because he was focused on beating Mox and Dark Order reclaiming its status. In the match, Uno hit a great senton off the top rope outside. Mox then tore his mask and drove his head into the steps. This let Uno blade at ringside, and he also appeared knocked out. Back in the ring, Mox delivered relentless hammer forearms. The referee just stood there doing nothing, even though Uno was not finding back and probably should have lost the match by knockout. Somehow, Uno came back with two pile drivers, but Mox put in four different versions of his choke and eventually won by knockout. And in that final sequence, when Mox was choking him, blood literally started squirting and spraying out of Uno's mask. Mox kept choking him after the bell. That led Dark Order out for the save. Claudio and Yuta evened the sides. And then Hangman attacked and punched Mox in the head with barbed wire wrapped around his hand. Mox immediately bladed at ringside and Hangman ran out to continue punching him as the show went off the air. Now, I said last week I was excited for Mox and Uno. And I think anyone who listens to the show knows I am no fan of the Dark Order or Evil Uno. Just not that I dislike them. I just never really cared about them. But the way they built this match last week and the promos that they did kind of on Rampage and on Dynamite leading into this, I was into it. They just had me really anticipating this match. That only grew throughout the show. And then we got the match and it was awesome until Uno's blood started squirting out of his mask all over Mox's arm in the ring. And then you had Mox blade moments later. And when that happened, it was the fourth time between Dynamite and Rampage this week that someone cut themselves. Now, Chris made a joke on Twitter when I tweeted about this. He's like, Mox saw that time was running out. He had to blade right before the show ended just to get it in. I thought that was a funny take by him. But again, four blade jobs across two shows inside of three hours. It's just ridiculous. And even worse, it's lazy. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. As I said earlier, this dynamite was probably the best one we've gotten in the last month. But the blading and the excessive bleeding, it completely 
turned me off at the end of the show. Uno's was straight up disgusting. It just was. And it ruined what was a fucking great match to that point that I was more excited to see than really anything on AEW TV this week. So for me personally, it was a shame. I know some of you don't care about blood. Others of you love it. Many of you, from what I understand based on tweets and DMs and and emails, agree with me. There is a place for blood in professional wrestling. Using it to help a baby face appear sympathetic or advance a storyline or in a death match, which by the way, Mox and Paige are having at Revolution. Then in those situations, it's all appropriate. But when you're blading just a blade and you're doing it to such an extensive, extreme level and it's happening every week or in one case, four times in a single week, it's lazy and it's predictable. And it's just not entertaining to me. You know, I've been watching wrestling over three different decades. When I grew up watching wrestling after my adolescence, when I started watching like during the Attitude Era and stuff, I used to tape trade. I got all the old ECW tapes. I have crazy deathmatch tapes from Japan. And that's not, I mean, some of it's blading, don't get me wrong, but a lot of it's real blood, like people hard way with weapons causing themselves to bleed. And when I was a teenager, I thought that was really cool. But times have changed, both in the United States, in the world, and in terms of taste for what wrestling is. And I'm not saying that blading isn't real wrestling. It is. And there's plenty of organizations that still do it frequently. And I'm not saying AEW should stop it. But to do it to this extreme, this frequently, it loses all meaning. And when you have WWE that basically does not blade and does not show blood on TV, that can be a differentiator for AEW. We get violent. We get a little bit more extreme. We're real sports. That all works. But when you do it every week and you do it four times inside of two episodes, it loses all its meaning and it's just cheap. That's really what it is. It's cheap. It's cheap color that AEW should be better than, especially given the talent on their roster and in many cases, the talent of the people who are blading and rant. On Dynamite, Tony Khan appeared backstage for a promoted, important announcement, despite saying, you know, he wouldn't go on camera for AEW. Now, he did pass the mic to Adam Cole for the announcement. He said he and other major AEW stars will get to tell more of their stories starting in March when AEW will have a one-hour show every week after Dynamite called AEW All Access. Cole also announced that he will return to the ring the same night ahead of the debut of All Access. (laughs) So... Okay, a few things here. This was such a typical Tony Khan move, promoting a quote-unquote important announcement coming off what was a terrible week of ratings for AEW. It was so transparent. Beyond that, you all are probably expecting me to shit on him for calling this an important announcement. But it was. It was important, and it was an announcement. Adding a fourth hour of weekly TV is notable, and it's good for AEW's relationship with Warner that they're willing to give them this opportunity. The terminology is key. Calling it an important announcement was appropriate. If he had said major announcement, then I would have criticized it. My only actual issue is the way they did it. Why the hell would you not have Adam Cole do this in the ring so he can get a big pop from the crowd, both for the show, maybe you even show a trailer on your big screen, and then after that's over, say, hey, also... I'm coming back to the ring, same week. Then the crowd's popping, everyone's cheering. I it, it is mind-numbing to me that they had Adam Cole come out 
and get that massive pop for his return. And everything else they've done with him has been taped or backstage. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Now, in terms of all access, this may end up being good. I've definitely wanted, and I think I've mentioned it on air across all the shows I've been on previously, I've wanted an unscripted show like this for a while, and I am more than willing to give this a shot. I was uninterested in Roads to the Top, but this seems like it may be different. I always thought the Total Divas could work for the entirety of the WWE roster. Now, this won't be that exactly, but it's a similar concept taking you inside the real lives of the wrestlers. But the promotion of the announcement, going back to that, it was just completely see-through. As far as Cole coming back to the ring, also great news. Why that would not be saved for Revolution, I have no idea. I can't imagine he moves the needle enough from a ratings perspective where they need to put it on TV to promote the all-access show, though it does seem like he and Britt Baker may be the main characters of that show. This does have me wondering a little bit about Cole's recovery and whether his in-ring return was purposely delayed two months or maybe even longer, so they had time to produce the footage that they taped for the series, all for it to coincide here with the debut of the show and his in-ring return. It, to me, just is far too coincidental. I would really hate to learn that they kayfabed a more serious concussion than perhaps it already was. So because of that, I have to believe Cole's telling the truth and it was serious, but I would not be surprised if the timetable was exaggerated for this exact reason. So they could have the debut on that big show, the return, I should say, sorry, on that big show, and then take some time and promote this for the specific week with him making the return ahead of that show. In terms of all access, one last note, you know, this is what I thought WWE should have done on Monday nights years ago, two hours of wrestling, and then the third hour is just something completely different, but it all falls within the framework. Now, am I going to have the stomach to watch all access on Wednesday nights after Dynamite is over? I don't know. I mean, maybe I will. I'm going to have to see a couple episodes, then make that determination. I could see it as something I DVR and then watch at my leisure. That's more likely the way I would handle it, where I discuss it always one week later than it actually should be. But I don't know. Uh, It's going to just remain to be seen at this point. But I am interested off the bat. I will tell you, though, adding another hour of wrestling to the week, when we now have four for AEW and we have seven for WWE. I mean, we're at 11 hours of professional wrestling just with those two brands, not counting if there's a premium live event or a pay-per-view. Now you're up to 14, 15 hours in a week. Folks, it's it's getting daunting. Let me just put it that way. On Rampage, Ricky Starks fought Daniel Garcia. Sammy Guevara prevented Starks from reaching the rope on a sharpshooter. So Action Andretti ran down to brawl and even the sides. Starks used the distraction to hit a spear and Rochambeau for the win. Guevara, after the bell, demanded a match with Andretti, promising to beat his ass. It was well-wrestled. We got the right winner. It's just crazy to see how far Garcia has fallen after upsetting Brian Danielson and being on the verge of turning on JAS for BCC, only for all of that momentum to be completely wiped away. As long as Stark's JAS ends at Revolution, which I do believe it will, I can stomach a couple more weeks of this. And really, what happened on Dynamite made it even easier to stomach because we had Starks at the ring to a nice pop. He had papers sticking out of his pocket. He said he was moving on from Chris Jericho. That led to cheers from the crowd. Then he explained the contract was open 
for anyone who wants to challenge him at Revolution. So of course, Jericho walked out in a suit covered in spikes. Dude looked like he was Hellraiser, saying their feud would only end on his terms and Starks would never beat him again. Peter Avalon came out, presumably to answer the challenge, only to immediately eat a Judas effect. Then Jericho entered the ring, giving a second thought to the match. Starks played reverse psychology and used sarcasm, and Jericho eventually agreed to the match. Not just that, he agreed to a stipulation, barring JAS from ringside, making it a true one-on-one match. Jericho grabbed the pen. He played up the snap of the trigger from his list days in WWE, and then signed the contract, adding that JAS was indeed barred from ringside. He was writing the stipulation in there. Chris ended saying nobody outsmarts the Ocho, and Ricky was just standing there smugly smiling as the segment ended, because that's exactly what he just did. Now, easily without question, this was the best thing we've gotten from this feud, aside from maybe Andretti's surprise upset win of Jericho initially. This took a feud that went too long and became ice cold, and it injected some life back into it. And really, I credit the Phoenix crowd for helping that happen. Even though the entire thing was predictable and the first half of it was completely convoluted, just being honest, having Starks outsmart Jericho and look cool while doing it was a lot of fun. Starks is gonna be Jericho. I mean, we've said that before in similar spots, only for Jericho to win. It seems obvious this time that they're actually gonna put Starks over. You haven't beat Jericho. Maybe we even get a break from the JAS. That would be fantastic. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland fought Dustin Rhodes. The pre-match promos here were strong. Dustin attacked Parker with a wrench before the bell, then bladed near the barricade. He later hit a code red, but Swerve came back with a Death Valley driver on the apron. Dustin hit Crossroads with a great spike sell by Swerve. Then he hit Final Reckoning, only for Parker to break the fall and throw Dustin into the steel steps for a rare but blatant disqualification in AEW. Swerve then jabbed Dustin with a chain, as Parker took out some security, grabbed a cinder block, and put Dustin's head on it. Just then, Keith Lee returned with gray hair as Parker stepped in front of Swerve to take a beating from him. Keith got a mediocre reaction from the crowd, and Rampage went off the air. So let me get this straight, okay? AEW kept Keith away for two months selling the injury, knowing they had a pay-per-view coming up in early March. And not only did they return him just two weeks before the show, for a limited match build, they did the return on a taped rampage airing at an abnormal time. This one was at 7 p.m. Eastern ahead of the NBA All-Star game. The match here was extremely solid and the DQ finish was acceptable given how infrequently it happens in AEW. But it's fair to say that Swerve beating Dustin would have helped his profile And there wasn't really a good reason not to just give him the win. Why are you protecting Dustin? It doesn't really make any sense. Above that, the return for Keith Lee was pitiful. It should have happened at least one week earlier in an important spot, live on Dynamite, not on a preempted rampage. So I just don't even understand what they're doing with this feud. I hate the entire thing. I'm glad Keith is back, but it left a lot to be desired. On Dynamite, Soraya fought Sky Blue. The women actually fought at the end of hour one for a change. They still, though, only got a few minutes in the ring. Tony Storm distracted and Soraya won with Rampage. The spray paint came back out before Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker ran down for the save. They didn't touch, of course. The heels then spray painted a fan sign that I think was planted. Ruby Soho entered after and did the belt motion on the stage, calling for a title shot at Hayter. Then later backstage, Hayter was angry about Soraya's involvement in her business 
but admitted, well, she probably deserves a title match because she hasn't lost yet in AEW. And she also wanted to give one to Ruby Soho. So she decided, let's just do a triple threat at Revolution. Now let's get this straight. The in-ring segment was shit from top to bottom. When Soho challenged though, I thought, hey, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. They could create a fun situation where Storm and Soraya actually help Soho win the title and either it was a ruse all along and they just got up over on Hater and Baker or maybe even they help her win the title without her knowledge, which would have put Soho in a really tough spot to make a decision. And then she could feud with them and be a babyface potentially or side with them and feud with Britt. A lot of options there. It would have been a great moment on a pay-per-view and some really interesting story development. Instead, Hater ruined that basically by giving herself a triple threat match, which is a dumb babyface move. It's also the second triple threat we've gotten in this rivalry with the sides just changing from Baker and Storm to Hater and Soraya. Talk about like lack of originality here. Now the match is probably gonna be strong. You're gonna have Hater and Soho carrying Soraya through this match, but the booking continues to be weak as hell. Now, as long as they don't do something incredibly stupid, like have Soho help Soraya win the title in the match and get rid of her own opportunity or the opposite, as long as they don't do that, it'll probably turn out okay. But the booking just leaves a lot to be desired. These are a number of really talented women. The storyline sucks, the booking sucks, and the match concept here, it's just repetitive and really it's an eye roll. It's, it's quite disappointing. On Dynamite, Christian Cage came out for an interview with Tony Schiavone when Jungle Boy immediately attacked him from behind and hit a brutal forearm to the back of his head. Then he set up Christian for a concerto, but he just stood there delaying, unsure whether he was gonna do it for like 30, 45 seconds. That let Christian regain consciousness. He had a low blow. Then he did a chair shot to Jungle Boy's head And then he banged his head into the chair a half dozen times on the stage with Jungle Boy blatantly blading to end the entire segment. And holy shit, did Jungle Boy look like a dork here. This is the definition of dumb babyface booking. Standing over a rival who turned on you, turned your best friend against you, and took cheap shots at you and your family for half a year. Only for you to decide not to take the shot, which on its own is fine because he was a babyface. But you don't just not take the shot, you delay so long, you leave yourself prone for attack. Even if Jungle Boy wins at Revolution, which he will, I can't imagine him not, he looked like an absolute moron here. And it was really unfortunate because this could have been a really good moment where he takes the chair and flings it aside and instead just starts punching Christian or does something like that where he said, I'm not going to stoop to your level, but I'm still going to beat your ass. Fine but instead they made him look like a total dork and a total moron. On Rampage, there was a trios title match, the elite defending again against Top Flight and AR Fox. Dante Martin threw a basketball at Kenny Omega's nuts, but it wasn't a DQ for some reason. Nick Jackson hit a double draping Swanton bomb. Darius Martin ate a triple super kick during a moonsault. Then he ate a V-trigger and one-winged angel with the elite retaining the titles. Look, it was a fun match from a spot perspective, completely meaningless with no storyline relevance given the winner was obvious, and it was a straight-up rematch, which AEW has told us time and again we wouldn't get. After the bell, the lights went out with Malachi Black and Brody King appearing in skull headdresses on the stage, and this was expected after the cut-in last week. But with only two weeks until Revolution, it is astonishingly short the time that they are using to build what should be the match 
in the trios division and the feud that should result in a title change. The trios titles were made for House of Black. It seems like way too soon to take it off the elite given they just won them coming off of the best of seven series, which happened right after they returned to AEW in a similar fashion to what they're doing with House of Black. Remember, the elite returned at AEW full gear, the last pay-per-view, and they had that title match. So there was basically no storyline building that. And here we are now ahead of Revolution, the next pay-per-view with months in between, let's not forget. And they're basically doing the same thing. I know they had the cut-in during the promo package. I think it was on Rampage last week or whatever. Maybe it was on Dynamite. I know they had like that really quick cut-in, but basically what they're doing is building what should be a top title match on the card 10 days out with House of Black. And really, there's not even a storyline behind it. It's just House of Black kind of saying, hey, we want to take the titles from you. Because on Dynamite, Black had a vignette promo package type of deal. He said there's a problem in AEW they would eradicate. King said they would purify AEW. Buddy Matthews then demanded a face-to-face confrontation with the elite. And again, it's it was a fine promo, but it feels rushed. And they had an opportunity to take something and make it a full-fledged story and instead are rushing it 10 days before revolution. It's the, the, everything that's happened with the trio titles has been extremely weird since they debuted. Obviously, Brawl Out led to AEW and Tony Khan having to change plans and do what they did with Death Triangle, bringing the titles back to the elite, so on and so forth. But here we are again, they had plenty of time, and instead they wasted time doing top flight and AR Fox bullshit, two matches that didn't even need to happen, and now you have the elite fighting House of Black, again in a match they should lose, but I don't know that they're going to so quickly after regaining the titles. On Dynamite, we had a Revolution Battle Royal. This was for one of the number one contendership spots in the fatal four-way match. Ray Phoenix eliminated Roosh by getting him on the apron and doing a tightrope walk PK to knock him off, which was a fantastic spot. Danhausen cursed 2.0. Best Friends eliminated them. Phoenix then eliminated Butcher, only for Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal to throw him over, leaving Trent Beretta on his own with them. Satnam Singh helped save his guys from being eliminated. Beretta hit a great tornado DDT on Lethal, only to eat stroke from Jarrett. The guy strutted, thinking Beretta was out of the ring, only for Orange to carry him on his shoulders back into the ring. Beretta flipped Lethal over the ropes, but Sings again saved Jarrett for the second time. He hit a second stroke, threw Trent over the ropes to win. So after all of this, we have Lethal and Jarrett challenging for the titles again, and a pay-per-view title match where three of the four teams are the ones that have been dominating the title picture for the last few months, in storylines that have grown massively old. Now look, obviously FTR is probably gonna take the last spot and ultimately win the titles in this match. But talk about boring and repetitive booking going into this. We're getting another battle royal next week. It just feels like this should have been done way better. And it would have been nice to get another team instead of Jarrett and Lethal in this spot. Best friends would have been just a lot of fun or putting the Lucha Bros in, just something that would have made the match exciting. I have no excitement to see this match, and given I know, or at least I think I know, that FTR are going to win the titles, the entire thing is just so predictable that it's just kind of an eye roll. And really, that continued with the acclaimed on Dynamite. They had a match against Big Bill and Lee Moriarty. Max Caster had one good line in his rap, S-A-W-F-T, of course, referring back to Big Cast. That was really about it. The guns eventually walked out. Anthony Bowens had a great hot tag. Big Bill booted Billy Gunn off the stage. Then his sons beat his ass at ringside. Still acclaimed rebounded with the arrival and mic drop. They pinned Moriarty and got the win. It was a match that accomplished absolutely nothing with obvious winners. 
and no real storyline purpose. And last, and this deserves to be last, we had a TBS championship match, Jade Cargill against Vert Vixen. Now you may ask Silver King, why did Vert Vixen get a title match? I have no idea. Cargill won with Jaded in 70 seconds. I can't even make this shit up anymore. 70 seconds as the lone women's match on that show. Amazingly bad. That is one big pile of shit. And that is what we got from AEW this week. Now, going ahead and looking at the Revolution card as it stands right now, we have the AEW World Championship, MJF defending against Brian Danielson in an Ironman match, the Women's Championship, Jamie Hayter against Ruby Soho and Soraya in a triple threat, Hangman Page against John Moxley in a Texas death match, Ricky Starks versus Chris Jericho, the Fatal 4-Way Tag Team Championship, the Guns acclaimed, Lethal and Jarrett, and most likely FTR, and what is surely going to be a trios championship match, the Elite against House of Black. So for the first six matches of this card, that is extremely strong. And I think, I mean, that has a chance to be just a top tier AEW pay-per-view. What I'm curious about is there's only really about six matches that are set. Obviously, Christian Cage and Jungle Boy will be a seventh, and there's some others that they could add. But given the fact that the Iron Man match is obviously going to take an hour, I'm wondering if this is the first AEW pay-per-view card where we have fewer than 10 matches. And, you know, honestly, given that match is going to be an hour and it's going to be the main event, I hope this only goes eight or nine matches or so. And I hope the pay-per-view only goes about three and a half hours or four hours because that's what these need. They've been too long and and monotonous and yeah, really high quality wrestling. But when it's just high quality wrestling for an entire show, in many aspects, the matches become less special. So I do overall like the way this card has developed. The two veteran versus youngster matches, Jericho, Starks, and Christian Jungle Boy, those are exciting. Two opportunities for the babyface pillars, potentially, of AEW to get wins. And really, the only down parts of the card for me are the Tag Team Championship, which to me is just an eye roll. The Women's Championship, again, I just don't really like the booking. I'll even give the Trios Championship a break because that's going to be an incredible match if we get it. So even though there's no storyline, at least it'll be exciting. So the card I'm, I'm kind of jazzed about, and I got to say I'm probably going to give it a high expectation grade next week on our AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview episode. Make sure you do not miss that. We will also have AEW Revolution instant analysis, and a live pre-show on Twitter Spaces. Before it begins, you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. All of that coming next week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So with that, let's move to NXT. As I noted, they are building towards Roadblock. They are also building towards NXT Stand and Deliver, which will be a premium live event the same day as the first day of WrestleMania 39. So let's go down what happened on NXT. We had the NXT Championship main event, Braun Breaker defending against Jinder Mahal. Jinder, in a promo video, said Braun is falling into the same trap he did this time last year, and the crowd is turning on him. This would just be the latest big match that Mahal wins. This was obviously the main event. Braun hit a huge topic on Hero on Indusher early. The Creed brothers then ran down to even the sides and brawl Indusher to the back. Breaker hit two German suplexes and a spinebuster. Mahal smacked him in disrespect. Braun then caught Jinder with half a Frankensteiner. Breaker countered the Coloss into an arm drag and hit a short ring spear for the win. Now, Braun sold well in the match, 
but it was slow as molasses. And it showed again that Breaker is just this one note guy. He has been on a downward trajectory for like six months now. And this certainly did not help. Now, last week, I theorized that potentially the boos that were coming from the crowd could be planted. And still, I don't know that to be a fact, but given the focus that NXT put on a sign in the crowd that it's tough to say a sign was professionally made, but it was made quite well <laughs> to the point that if you were going to feature a sign on TV, you want it to be very legible, then you would go and make a sign like that one. Uh, the chants were audible. It does seem like NXT is forcing the heel turn for Braun Breaker, which is interesting because I don't even know that they needed to force it. I think it naturally would have happened. We mentioned coming out of Vengeance Day how fans are going to naturally cheer Carmelo Hayes over Braun Breaker at Stand and Deliver and probably on the road to Stand and Deliver. So if they're going to do that, why not let it happen organically rather than force it? Perhaps their idea is, hey, if it's going to happen, then let's make sure it happens the way we want it to. And look, having the Performance Center and a really confined environment, it does allow WWE and NXT to do things like that and kind of control the narrative. That's not really the worst thing in the world. I don't hate it. I just feel like it would be better if it happened organically and Breaker turned on the crowd. Hey, all I've done is win for you guys and and been the type of champion that you want me to be. And now you're here booing me. This is what I get. Then he turns on the crowd and he's a heel for the next year. It's what he needs being a heel. We talked about it on this podcast over the last two weeks. His character has become one note. His wrestling, to some respects, has become one note. His gear is an homage to his family, yet he doesn't use his family's name. He just needs to be his own person. Really, he should get rid of the breaker name and go with something else. But he should be a heel. And I hope when they do that, he, he's they're doing it in NXT and he stay, stays there because, man, he needs way, way, way more development before he is ready for the main roster. Now, after the bell of that match, Grayson Waller took over the screen from the production area, cutting a promo on Shawn Michaels for banning him from the show. Waller said Stand and Deliver will be his show, and he dared HBK to join his talk show in two weeks at Roadblock. Waller has been doing great work since Vengeance Day, and this was definitely intriguing. The booking's probably going to be simple. Waller challenges. Michael refuses to fight, but relents. Maybe gives him a Stand and Deliver match against an opponent of his choosing. As we said a week or so ago, that could be Dragon Lee. It could be another new signee, a main roster surprise if they did that. Two options, Shinsuke Nakamura, who doesn't seem to have any plans for WrestleMania, or Johnny Gargano. If you remember, when Gargano left WWE and wasn't sure what he was going to do, Waller took Gargano out with those chair shots, and it was a big thing. So you could potentially have Gargano come into NXT and do, you know, Waller leaves NXT if he loses, and Gargano beats him and Waller shows up on SmackDown or just Gargano gets revenge against Waller. That would be really cool. Uh, I think getting Gargano on something WrestleMania weekend, especially if he's not gonna be used for WrestleMania, makes a lot of sense. There are some people who think Shawn Michaels might actually wrestle here and do like, you leave NXT or I retire for good type of booking, but he's already retired. And I really think he just wants to put the crown jewel match like in the past, forget it ever happened and not even reference the fact that he's going to be wrestling again. I can't see Shawn Michaels wrestling, even though some people insist that they think that's what's going to happen. So I'm going to go ahead, and if I had to take a guess, Waller Dragon Lee or Waller Gargano at Stand and Deliver. And it may be a surprise in the moment where we don't know who his opponent is until it's announced. Similar, of course, to Seth Rollins and Cody Rhodes at last year's WrestleMania. 
Mako Satamora held the class with Performance Center students when Roxanne Perez popped up wanting to join. The students all dropped out one by one with Roxy, the only one left standing through the grueling workout, only to learn at the end of that workout, it was just the warm-up. When they actually started training, Roxy suggested they stop because they're fighting in two weeks, but Mako put her through hell. Then Satamora said she allowed Perez to train with her because their match is going to come down to heart, not strength. This was a really fun sequence and an interesting build for a babyface versus babyface match. I could see Roxy winning by using something Mako taught her, and that would be a really good way to excuse the loss for Satamora while putting Perez over a legend in Mako, who, of course, is the final boss both in kayfabe and in reality as well. Sol Ruka got a second promo package. She was surfing, skateboarding, and doing gymnastics as she talked about not being afraid to fail and continuing to practice until she gets things right. That was her explanation for wanting another match with Zoe Stark. She definitely has the total package that WWE wants for a top woman in this division, and her talking was believable here. The question now is how quickly she develops and what level she's ultimately able to reach. Stark later denied Ruka another opportunity and instead expressed her anger that Satomura got flown over from Japan by Perez and was given a title match when she's the one who actually deserves a title match. Then Zoe said she would show Mako the real final boss if they ever got in the ring together. That match was later booked for next week on NXT. Easily Stark's best promo since her return. And you know what? It may have been her best promo ever in NXT. She spoke clearly, didn't stumble, and it was completely believable. Plus, holy shit, Sotomora Stark next week, that is going to be a banger if they get time. Gallus fought Malik Blade and Idris Anofe in a non-title match. Two guys in barrettes wheeled a cake down to the ring, distracting Gallus as Anofe went on a run. The faces botched a tag team backstabber, and Blade took the awful forearm power slam finisher that Gallus uses, the champions winning the match. After the bell, the guys brought the cake and the ring to celebrate the two-year anniversary of Gallus losing the NXT UK titles to Pretty Deadly. After Gallus smashed the two dudes' faces in the cake, Deadly attacked from behind with chairs, threw them into the steel steps, and hit spilt milk on Wolfgang into the steps. Now, the post-match attack was strong. The rest of this was boring as sin. Gallus is not hitting at all since coming to America. I thought them taking the titles from New Day was the right decision, but I have second-guessed it every single week since. They just do not seem to work in NXT US. Isla Dragunov fought Trick Williams. Before the match, Trick said he was out to prove he could do more than talk, but the talking he did while saying that was fantastic. Williams dumped Dragunov off the top rope for a hard bump on the apron. When JD McDonough walked out and joined commentary, Trick tried an awful roundhouse kick that Isla countered into a powerbomb. He's just too big to do a roundhouse kick. It doesn't work. Dragunov then hit a clutch German suplex and torpedo Moscow for the win. Other than the kick, this was easily Trick's best match. Isla bumped his ass off for him. It was really nice to see a clean finish without Carmelo Hayes getting involved. And as we noted, this was a holdover match because JD McDonough is still recovering from the detached retina. Solid opening to the show for both guys. Melo later visited Trick. He pumped him up in the training room for his performance. Trick wanted to get food. Melo said they would. He just wanted to watch the main event. Tyler Bate put over Melo and then he dropped some poetry as like motivation. Mello put Bate back over, saying he's glad his journey has nothing to do with the NXT title picture, which was all his. It was a great backstage segment between all three guys. I hoped that they would save Bate as a top challenger for Mello once he wins the title after Stand and Deliver. Instead, they're running it next week. So again, that match is going to be a banger. 
but it just seems unnecessary to run it here and not wait, as I just said. Bait hit the ring earlier with a couple random jackasses chanting, we want Waller for some reason. Bait was happy to get a warm welcome in America and then just rambled until schism interrupted with Joe Gacy saying they're a family while Bait left his family in the UK. Then they tried like a shield style attack when Chase U interrupted ahead of their match. Straight up, this was an awful promo segment. Between Bait's slow delivery and lack of purpose behind this promo to Schism's somehow even slower delivery and repetitive message, it could not have ended soon enough. This deal Bait is doing with like trying to be prophetic with his words, it's just not made what he's trying to do for American wrestling, especially as a babyface. So I really, really do hope someone thinks better of that. I'm bored, brother. We had Chase U against Dyad. Andre Chase had a DDT flatliner combo, followed by a moonsault outside and a froggy crossbody inside. Next was a Russian leg sweep before he stopped the Chase U stomps to save Thea Hale, who was being stalked by Ava. Dyad caught Hudson with a doubled code breaker and got the win. After the bell, Hudson yelled that Hale needs to grow up and Chase has to allow her to grow up, asking if it was a university or a charity. Hale cried and Chase looked angry. This was well done from both an in-ring and a storytelling perspective. Chase continues to impress. And even if this group does not make the main roster, he should be able to find something that works for him. He definitely can be a main roster superstar. No question about it. Wesley backstage said he knows the fans love the open challenges, so he's going to do another one next week at the top of the show with the hope he retains and moves on to stand and deliver. It was a fun segment with Mackenzie Mitchell. They had solid chemistry. It helped Wes come over as an ultra baby face, which is the perfect role for him. Other than that, nothing else to really say about it. Indy Hartwell fought JC Jane. Hartwell went on a run, but Jane turned the tide with heel antics. She propped Indy's head on the second turnbuckle and hit a huge boot. Just as she was going for a second big boot, Gigi Dolan ran in from the crowd, attacking her to a huge pop. They brawled to the back with the match ending in a disqualification. While I thought Dolan would be sidelined another week or two, and I do think they brought her back too soon, there's no doubting the return was hot and it got a great reaction from the fans. The DQ was appropriately placed here, given a face saved another face while simultaneously getting revenge. More than anything, Jane worked really well as a pure heel and showed a lot of chops for that role long-term. Ivy Nile fought Alba Fire. Tatum Paxley was hesitant to join Nile at ringside because of Isla Dawn, but Ivy said they're a team. Tatum looked at the Diamond Mine flag and she decided to join her. Nile countered a gory bomb into a pinning combination for a near fall. Don jumped on the apron as Nile had fire in her choke submission, so Paxley did the same. Paxley ended up being the one getting knocked off the apron, and fire hit gory bomb for the win. Paxley refused to be helped up after, and the finish kind of played into the backstage segment. It was too short and shockingly slow to glean much off of it, but I'm kind of interested to see what happens with Ivy and Paxley. I don't know why they're putting them at odds. It doesn't seem necessary. And I'm still curious what the plan is with Fire and Dawn. Fallon Henley left a message apologizing to Brooks Jensen with Josh Briggs telling her, just let him come to you because you screwed up and it's up to him to decide whether he wants to accept your apology. Henley finally said what I did for weeks about it being weird this dragged on with Zach, her brother, her being Keanu James's brother, all she had to do was say so. Briggs told her to apologize to James first and maybe then Jensen would come around. So Fallon later visited Kiana's office and apologized. James said she didn't explain herself because she wanted Henley's trust. Kiana accepted the apology saying jealousy is normal. Fallon protested saying she's not jealous and ultimately they shook hands. Now we talked Tuesday about how WWE is doing a great job with realistic takes on typical wrestling storylines. 
NXT is doing the exact opposite. Refusing to explain yourself because you want another person to trust you is the height of absurdity. If anything, you would say, Zach's my brother. I can't wait for you to meet him to build trust and show her that you actually care about her friend in Jensen. There are so many better ways this could have been executed. I know some like it, but it's just not hitting for me, and I don't know that it's ever going to happen for me. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Daba Cato said in a promo package he feels Apollo Cruz's anger, but Cruz forgot Cato was responsible for him winning the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania, only to leave him behind and go to NXT in search of gold on his own. Cato said Cruz has no future without him, and he would take Apollo out of this world. To my utter shock, this was a damn good promo from Dabakato, especially given he's someone we've never heard spoke before. I don't know if it's going to be consistent and he's always going to be able to talk, but for one night, I became a Dabakato fan. Mr. Stone stayed on Von Wagner backstage asking if he was ready to show some personality finally. Tony D'Angelo and Stax challenged given Wagner took the North American Open Challenge last week. Stone convinced Wagner to decline, but they kept shit-talking him until he snapped and accepted. So we got Wagner against D'Angelo. Stone sat in a chair and argued with Vaughn during the match. D'Angelo eventually won with a lifted Uranagi. Not sure what happened to his swinging fisherman's suplex finisher. That was way better than this Uranagi. Wagner and Stone continued arguing at ringside after the bell. D'Angelo put over Stack's loyalty for defending him from Dijak last week rather than take the open challenge for himself. D'Angelo then challenged Dijak at Roadblock in a jailhouse street fight with seven days to answer. This was all just fine. The Wagner Stone thing is like spinning its wheels. D'Angelo and Dijak seem to be headed for a fight for over a month now. This progressed both of those stories forward. And for that, I'll call it a success, but it wasn't much in the way of entertainment value. Nikita Lyons backstage said she's going to be out for about a year and has no idea who took her down in the parking lot. Tiffany Stratton interrupted, saying Lyons wasn't important enough for her to waste her time attacking. Then she suggested that she just stay away for the entire year. It was good stuff for Stratton. I'm not sure the point of the entire thing. Drew Gulak with Charlie Dempsey backstage denied that he turned on Hank Walker, saying Walker was just someone he was trying to help. Gulak said Walker was too nice and to succeed in NXT, you can't be afraid to break bones and snap ligaments. You have to be someone like Dempsey. It was a good heel turn promo from Gulak, and obviously the storyline makes complete sense. The question remains, as we have asked for numerous weeks now, whether he builds on this to do a full group like Catchpoint or if he only works with Dempsey. Stevie Turner aired another stream where she talked about Lyra Valkyria and explained her gimmick. She said Lyra's talented but wouldn't get past her. It was fine. It's a low-card storyline. The Stevie Turner stuff for me it's not really working yet. It just feels really scripted. And when someone's doing a live streamer type of gimmick, it should be the opposite of scripted. It should be off the cuff, like doing a podcast. We're just talking here, right? If I just wrote a script and read it to you, you would say, well, Silver King just you know writes out uh, uh, his takeaways and, and reads them on the podcast every week. It doesn't feel real when you just have Stevie Turner like reading planned lines while doing a streaming gimmick. So hopefully they come around on this and figure out a way to make it work. But I don't know that they're going to. Stevie, though, decent in the ring, and her debut match was fine. We'll see what they ultimately do with her going forward. So that was it for this week across AEW and NXT. Obviously, we have a ton to talk about. Like I mentioned, there's still a ton to come next week for AEW ahead of Revolution. So let's go ahead and break down the schedule for next week, just so we are all on the same page. And really, because I didn't write it down myself, I'm going to go make sense of it in my head. 
while I'm speaking to all of you. So Tuesday, we will be back with our next WWE episode, of course, covering all the fallout from SmackDown and Raw. On Wednesday, we will have a special NXT and NJPW episode. We'll perhaps use that as a mini preview for Roadblock. We usually don't do ultimate previews, of course, for uh, TV specials. We save them for pay-per-views and premium live events, but we'll do a mini preview for Roadblock on Wednesday's NXT show. We'll talk Mercedes Monet, Jay White, Eddie Kingston, and everything else that happened from NJPW Battle in the Valley last week. Then on Thursday, we will give you your AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview episode. And finally, Saturday, AEW Revolution Instant Analysis. Earlier on Saturday, if you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, you will be able to participate in an AEW Revolution pre-show live on Twitter Spaces. You can also vote in pre- and post-show polls for AEW Revolution by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Other reasons to follow us, episode drops, news analysis highlights, all that good stuff. Also, folks, on the way out, please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening to the latest edition of Getting Over. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. 